Turn your Bibles, please, to Luke 18. Luke chapter 18, verse 9. I must acknowledge at the beginning of this sermon that this passage of Scripture is extremely familiar to most of us. In fact, this passage of Scripture has been referenced so many times by members of the preaching team in this pulpit that you might be under the impression that we have already preached this passage. I assure you that we haven't. In fact, you might feel that the subject we approach today has been belabored in our journey through Luke. Perhaps you believe that Jesus has already made his point regarding this subject, and you question why he keeps bringing it up. What makes this passage even more laborious, church, is the fact that I personally have referenced this passage several times as I've preached through Luke. I've given you my opinions, thoughts on what the passage means. Several times, in fact. Not only that, I feel like I have approached this subject nearly every other sermon I've preached through Luke thus far. See, preaching is a difficult thing, church. When you preach, you battle against pride, self-sufficiency, doubt, hypocrisy, laziness, and a whole host of other sins. You also struggle to understand the text at times. And even when you wrap your mind around the text, you struggle to package the text in such a way that it's edifying for the congregation and their understanding of the text. Not only that, you, you struggle to apply the text in a way that is meaningful to the congregation without stepping on people's toes unnecessarily aggressively, but not shying away from the full weight of the text and its ramifications for the local body to which you are indeed serving. I also acknowledge, church, that listening to a sermon is particularly difficult. It is hard to sit still for 50 minutes and listen to anything, better yet a sermon. In our day and age of endless distractions, it's it's hard to focus for even five minutes without pulling out our phones, without thinking of something different. It is difficult, it is difficult to, to listen to a man preach when you know all of his sinful tendencies. It is difficult to listen to a man preach who isn't particularly gifted at preaching. It is difficult to listen to a man preach because we might not agree with everything that they're saying. It is difficult to listen to a man preach because he might completely butcher the text altogether. Lay aside the man preaching for a moment and consider that sometimes the biggest reason for our struggle to listen to preaching is our own sinful hearts. At times, our our hearts are cold and callous. At times, we sit in these chairs and our hearts are sinful and rebellious towards God. Maybe that's you this morning. We don't desire to hear from the preacher because we don't desire to hear from the Word of God because we don't desire to hear from God at all because we don't desire God at all. Finally, perhaps the most difficult sermons to listen to are the sermons that preach things that we already know. It is during these sermons that we are most prone to turn off our hearts, turn off our minds, put it all on autopilot, and just sit here for a few minutes until communion is served and we leave. We might think, well, I've already mastered my understanding of this text and have considered its implications for my life in the past. Therefore, I will give a half-hearted effort at engaging my heart and mind in such a sermon. Friends, I think that would be a grave mistake today. In fact, I don't think there's a more relevant topic for our congregation to hear about from the Lord this very morning. Not because I am in the pulpit, Not because I am in the pulpit and there's something special about my preaching. Rather, this is extremely important because it addresses mankind's biggest sin struggle. We're talking about the issue of self-righteousness 
Again, I, I, I know I have talked about this topic at length for months as it's been brought up in the Gospel of Luke. As we have looked at Jesus' interaction with the Pharisees many times, Jesus constantly rebukes them for their self-righteousness. It's constantly the same message in every single interaction with the Pharisees. And time after time, Luke still records these interactions with the same detail, the same outcome, and the same implications every single time. Community Bible Church, could it be that Luke understands that this is our biggest struggle? If not literally our biggest struggle, might we consider that the repeated and belabored focus of self-righteousness in the Gospel of Luke might point to the fact that self-righteousness is at least one of the biggest sins that we are prone to commit? Perhaps we can agree on that. Now, because I have preached again on this topic at length in Luke, I tend to know how the congregation responds to this topic. Probably roughly a dozen or more times, many people come to me after the sermon on self-righteousness, and, and they express something of the sentiment of, yes, I tend to identify with the self-righteous Pharisees. Because that's who typically Jesus is battling. It's whenever I come to the text and I preach it, that's my tendency. I identify more with the self-righteous Pharisee most of the time. In reality, we all struggle with self-righteousness like the Pharisees. However, there's a difference in acknowledging our sin and repenting of our sin. It's a difference. There's a difference between simple acknowledgement of sin and hearts that actually repent of sin. There's a difference between sitting in a small group and making small talk about our sin struggles and actually confessing our sin to God in hopes that the Holy Spirit would change us and sanctify us. As the great Puritan pastor John Owen once wrote, be killing sin or sin be killing you. Church, these next few moments will be a great time of spiritual warfare. Satan's desire for you leaving here today is for you to feel comfortable in self-righteousness. For you to feel comfortable in your sin. But King Jesus' desire for you is to walk in the good works that he created you to walk in according to Ephesians chapter 2. It's his goal for you. Satan will tempt you with boredom this morning. Maybe even in this moment. Satan will tempt you with pride. Ask the Holy Spirit, even now. I know, Pat, I know Tom's already prayed, but even now. Ask the Holy Spirit to soften your heart. To give you eyes to see the implications of this text. And with that, let's turn to Luke. Luke 18, verses 9 through 14. He, Jesus, also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. I believe the main point of this passage of scripture is this, that Jesus offers the righteousness that the humble truly seek and gives the proud the humility they deserve. Say that again. Jesus offers the righteousness that the humble truly seek and gives the proud the humility that they deserve. 
In order to establish and prove this main point this morning, church, I want to give you an idea of my strategy in attacking the text this morning. First, I want to begin in the end. I want to begin in the end. I want to see the implications that make this text so weighty for us. Next, I will address Jesus' audience at the beginning of verse 9 and try to understand why Jesus' handling of this issue is so important by actually taking a detour into the book of Romans. Third, we will make our way back to the primary passage in Luke to look at the characteristics of the self-righteous and the truly righteous. And finally, we will consider what this text requires of us. That's where we're headed this morning, church. Point one. Point one, we must truly be righteous. We must truly be righteous. I, fin- I recently finished watching a show called We Crashed. Anybody seen it? No? Okay. Well, We Crashed is a dramatic true story about the rise and fall of Adam Newman, who was the founder of the famous co-working company WeWork. In the first few minutes of the very first episode of We Crash, the writers and directors of the show take the viewer to the very end of the story of Adam Newman, where the board of directors for WeWork seek to remove Adam Newman from his role as CEO of WeWork. Immediately after this scene, it cuts right to the beginning of Adam's journey as an immigrant from Israel trying to pitch some unsuccessful business ideas to various customers and investors, etc. You get... get You get the gist. And it's at that point that we will see the rest of the story unfold. However, it it, it is because the writers showed us the end of the story first that we were better able to understand the trajectory of the story along the way. It created a sense of anticipation, and we were able to notice important details along the way because we knew the point of the story in the very end. In a similar strategy, Community Bible Church, I, I want us to look at the end of this parable to see what Jesus wants us to understand as we walk away this morning. So look at the end. As we do, I believe it will better set us up to understand the weight of this parable and its implications. So as as we make our way to verse 14 at the end of this, this parable, we notice that Jesus says this, that the man, he says, this man went down to his house justified justified, rather than the other. This man went down to his house justified, rather than the other. Jesus is dealing with the issue of justification here. Jesus is dealing with the issue of justification here. As Jesus tells the story, he wants the hearer to understand that there is a contrast of sorts. There are two men presented in the text, and the ultimate outcome for each as presented in Jesus' story is that one was justified and the other was not. One left the temple justified, one left the temple not justified. Now, if you've grown up in church, you know that the concept of justification is a mighty important concept. The Greek word for justified is dikaiao. Understood most literally, it means to declare righteous. Most often in the Bible, it is a word that is meant to describe our relationship to God. Now, we know that because of our sin, each of us, because of our sin, in and of ourselves, we stand guilty before God. Therefore, we stand condemned to receive the punishment for our sins, which is the wrath of God for all of eternity. For things to be made right between us and our holy God. And in order for us to stand in His presence, friends, we need to be justified. We need to be justified. We need to be made righteous. That's what justified is. To be declared righteous. We, we don't just need the title righteous. We actually need to be righteous. Understand? We don't need a new name tag. We don't need a new job description. We need to be. Be righteous. The most important thing for us to understand 
is how one is made righteous before God. It is of eternal importance. Luckily, God's word is full of texts such as this one that point to who is justified and who is not. And in his grace, he has revealed these truths to us so that we may live with him. We must be. We must be justified. We must be righteous. In this text, Jesus presents two men. One is declared righteous before God. One is not. The next logical question is what makes one man justified and the other man not? Let's turn to the main body of the text to find the answer to that question. Point two, self-righteousness is insulting to the glory of God. Self-righteousness is insulting to the glory of God. The beginning of this passage, in verse 9, Jesus gives us the intended audience of this text. We don't have to guess who this text was written to. Specifically, Luke tells us that Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves as righteous and treated others with contempt. And so there are, there are two main issues at play here. Let's address them separately. First, Luke tells us that there are some that trust in themselves that they are righteous. If you're an underliner in your Bible, underline that right there. The trust in themselves. First, Luke tells us that there's some that trust in themselves that they are righteous. In other words, they find their righteousness that are needed to make things right between them and God. They find their, their righteousness within themselves. In our modern context, we call this self-righteous. Here's a fact. We know that nobody likes self-righteous people. Nobody likes self-righteous people. Self-righteous people don't warm anyone's hearts. Nobody likes self-righteous people. And here's the thing. Jesus clearly didn't like self-righteous people. Jesus likes everyone. Jesus didn't like everyone. <laughs> Jesus didn't like the self-righteous. He didn't. You see, Jesus shares his harshest criticism for the self-righteous. And while none of us like self-righteous people, we often dislike self-righteous people for the wrong reason. We often dislike self-righteous people because in their acting out of their own self-righteous hearts, they exalt themselves and in the process project themselves to be better than us. And this is often offensive to us because we can't stand the possibility of someone else thinking that they are better than us. In other words, we often hate self-righteousness in others because of our own sense of self-righteousness. In fact, we often hate self-righteousness in others more than we hate self-righteousness in ourselves. Why? Because we think that someone else believes they are better than us. When we think that someone else believes they are better than us, we believe that we are being robbed of some glory that we believe we are owed. See, there is a godly reason to hate self-righteousness in others, however. There is. And it, 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 it isn't because their sense of self-righteousness robs us of glory that we think that we are due. No, the, the reason Jesus hates self-righteousness and the reason we should hate self-righteousness, church, is because it robs God of the glory that is due to him. We must understand that God has absolutely zero problems, zero problems with individuals seeing themselves as righteous. I'll say that again. God has no problems. It's not, it's not the problem that people are seeing themselves as righteous. It's not the problem that people are somehow, somewhere out there, seeing themselves as holy. Jesus wasn't speaking this parable to people who simply believed that they were righteous. 
Jesus is speaking this parable to people who base their righteousness on their own behavior. That's the problem. Jesus is speaking this parable to people who truly and actually and literally trusted in themselves that they were righteous. That is the problem. So to fully grasp the weight of this problem, it's detour time. Turning your Bibles to the book of Romans chapter 3, where I will pick up in verse 9. You turn to Romans 3, maybe you understand the, the book of Romans. You understand up, up, to, up to this point in Romans, there, Paul's making an argument, and, and there might be some, uh, some Jews who believe that, um, that they were better than others because they had given, they'd been given the law, and because they'd been given the law, they, they thought that they were actually following the law, and they were basing their own righteousness and their own ability to follow the law. And Paul's like, Paul's absolutely squashing that idea as he comes to Romans 3, verse 9. He says, what then? Are we we any Jews better off because we had been given the law? He says, no, not at all. We have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, he's talking about everybody, Jew and Greek, and Paul's point here. Everybody, Jew, Gentile, Jew, non-Jew, white, black, brown, all of it, yellow, you name it, whole world, as it is written, none is righteous. That's a problem, right? What's point one? We need to be righteous. To, To enter the presence of God, we need to be righteous. To be with Christ for eternity, we need to be righteous because God's holy. We're not. No one is righteous. No, not one. Not you. Not your grandma. Not me. Not the elders. No one. Not one. You're guilty. Apart from Christ, you're guilty. You stand condemned. Paul goes on. No no one understands. This is the thing. You don't even understand how guilty you are. You're infinitely guilty before a holy God. You're not a small bit guilty, like a little slap on the hand guilty, and I go sit in the corner guilty. Like your death sentence, capital punishment for eternity type of guilty before a holy God. You don't, you don't even comprehend it. You don't understand it. The reality is, Paul goes on to, then, then to say, and no one seeks for God. You're, you're, we're, we're, apart from Christ, we're, we're wretched. We're ignorant. Even that moment, you might think, well, I'm, I'm, I, still co- I still seek after God. I mean, I go to church. I read my Bible. Apart from God, you don't. Not at all. Apart from God, God's active work in your life to change you, you don't seek God. Neither do I. Not at all. Not slightly. Apart from God's work in my life, I am not interested in God at all. Do not pursue Him. Do not seek after Him. I might seek intellectual knowledge. I might seek, you know, church attendance and friends and and community and food and a thousand reasons why people could come to church. But apart from God, we all don't seek Him. We don't seek to know Him and seek to love Him and seek to worship Him. We don't seek for Him to be our treasure at all. This is the human condition. He says, no one. Paul goes on, all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. That's a human condition. All the earth, all of God's creation, worthless. Why? Why? Because of their sin. You think, well, I'm, I'm pretty good. I mean, I don't know. I give money to the poor. I, 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 you know, I vote the right way. I do this. I, and Paul says, but yeah, but no one does good. Even when we, when we give to the poor, we don't give to the glory of God. We give for our own glory. We, we, we give to pay it forward to hope that it comes back to us. We give to be seen. We give out of guilt. We give out of all the wrong reasons. We don't do good, not even one, the Bible says. We don't do the right thing. We don't say the right thing. Paul continues to say, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive the venom of asps is under their lips. Like you're like, you're like a cobra. Your, your mouth is dangerous like a cobra. You might say nice things, but you flatter. 
You speak falsehood. You gossip. We slander. We're overly critical. That's who we are. The mouth of... The mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their, their feet are swift to shed blood and in their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. Here's the biggest problem. There's no fear of God before their eyes. That's the human condition. No love for God, no honor of God, no worship of God, no pursuit of God, no fear of God. Apart from God, we're worthless, ignorant, I'm going to say it, stupid individuals. Apart from God. Because it's true. We're evil and we're vile. I went to a Zach Brown comp concert a few nights ago and I'd never heard this song. I didn't know most of his songs, but you know, still fun, fun show. I got the tickets for free, so you know, why not go? He's saying this, this song, maybe you've heard of it. I, I'd only heard it the first time, but I was like, this sums up the human condition from a very worldly perspective. He says, we're all in the same boat, fishing in the same hole, wondering where the time goes and money too, trying to fix the same broke hearts, wishing on the same stars. We're all hoping hope floats and we're all in the same boat. It gives in, indicative. This is indicative. We're all basically good people searching for good things, you know, in the same little boat here. Spinning our, you know, we're basically good. There's some bad things that happen in the world, so here's this imperative. So share them peaches if you're holding. Take those shots and keep reloading. If you can't be nice, don't say nothing at all. So help somebody who might be struggling. Spread a little love. Got to give back something. If the ship keeps rocking, we'll all go overboard. Just be good. Problem, friends. Good song. Sounds great at a country concert. Absolutely contrary to the Word of God. But that is mankind's idea of themselves. Basically good able to pursue good. You know, bad stuff happens, but our goodness can overcome the bad things. Here's the problem. We can never, ever, ever, ever be good enough for God. As Paul continues in Romans 3, he says this in 3.19, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human will, being, will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sins. What Paul's writing there is that God has given his people the holy law, and his, his law is, is like our law in, in, in America, it's corrupt. There are so many corrupt laws in our country. It is not perfect. It is not, I mean, it's decent, but it's not great. God's law is holy. It's perfectly holy. God's standards are perfectly righteous, and God's given it to, to his people. And what that law does is it shows God's people that you are not holy. That you will never be able to achieve this on your own. It, as Paul says, it reveals knowledge of sin in your life. In other words, it actually, when you try to obey the law and you look at it at its purpose and its intent, it's meant to reveal the fact that you need a Savior. And that I need a Savior. And that I will never be saved by this law. Sounds like bad news, right? Well, to those who understand the law, it's bad news. To the Pharisees, it was good news. Because to the Pharisees, they got the law and they said, nailed it. I got it. I got it all. Look at me following the law. I'm headed, headed. We're almost home. You know, we're, we're headed. Here comes the Pharisees. But to those who are truly desiring holiness and desiring righteousness, desiring the Lord God, look, I, I'm guilty. I need help desperately. And there's good news as Paul continues in Romans 3.21. He says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested, been, been most clearly revealed in its fullness. The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. To the Old Testament believer, the righteousness pointed to the, to the righteousness of God 
but most clearly we see it somewhere else, something that the law and prophets bear witness to. In fact, that we, we look at the Old Testament, we, we look at the law, we look at the prophets, they're all pointing to something. It isn't just condemned, 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 you're a sinner, 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 but there is one coming who would fulfill the law. So fear not. Walk by faith. Obey by faith to the glory of God. The law and the prophets were bearing witness to something. Romans 3.22 The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. What righteousness? Here it is. How do you receive the righteousness you need? How do you receive the righteousness of God that you need? How do you receive it? By through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe in Him. For all who trust in Him. You trust in His righteousness, not your own. You trust in His righteousness. You trust in the fact that Christ came, put on flesh, dwelt among us, obeyed the law, fulfilled it in its fullness, completely satisfied the wrath of God on our behalf. Put your trust in that righteousness. And friend, you, you, you don't just get righteousness. God declares you righteous. You are righteous. Straight up. Paul says there's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everybody. We've all fallen short. And are justified. It's that word. You're made righteous. Declared righteous. You are justified. Paul's speaking of justification here. How? By his grace. Not through your effort. Not through your work. Not through your desire. Not through your pursuit. Not through any of these things. But simply by his grace. Your justification wasn't your idea. Your justification wasn't your work. Your justification was God's idea and God's work, God's decision, God's pursuit. It, you are justified by His grace as a gift. You didn't earn it. You didn't buy it. You didn't purchase it. You didn't seek it. You didn't trade Bitcoin for it. It was a gift. How? Through the redemption. God was buying us back from the slave market. God was purchasing us as a possession for his own. Purchasing us from death through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Whom God put forward. God gave his son. It was God's idea. God did not have to. God sent his son forward as a propitiation. That means that, that, that God, in order to satisfy his wrath that we all deserve... He sent his son, willingly sent his son to satisfy that wrath to be received not by church attendance, not by giving money to the poor, not by not drinking, not by not looking at porn, not by any all these things. It's to be received, how? By faith. This next sentence hits at the heart of why self-righteousness is so vile in the eyes of God. Why did God do this? Why was this God's strategy? Why would God send his son? Why was this God's plan for salvation? Why? Do you ever ask yourself, could it be done any other way? Could God have just done it any other way? I think Romans... The second half of Romans 3.25 tells us this. No. This was to show God's righteousness. Salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone for salvation was not to point at how great you are. Was not to point to how mighty your faith is. Christ's plan for salvation was to show and demonstrate and display and herald and magnify God's righteousness for God's glory. Because in his, for, his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. He's, he's speaking about these, these Old Testament saints who, whose, whose faith was still in the one to come. You know, they, they, would go, they would go to the temple and they would, they would make sacrifices and, and they would try, do their, you know, try to obey the law because they trusted God, but, but they were, their hope was in a future redeemer. 
It, it, you know, think of it this way. I like Shailen. He kind of gave me this example, and I don't know if he came up with it or not, but he talked about like the Old Testament saints, their, their sins being paid for on credit. You know, pay the credit card. Well, ultimately, the credit card comes, the bill comes due, and, and you pay it. And Jesus came, and he, and, he, and he paid their debt. And this was to show God's righteousness. And, and then verse 26 says, it was to show his righteousness at the present time. Showed his righteousness in the past. Show his righteousness at the present time. So that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Your salvation is meant to display. It is for your good. And it is because he loves you. And it is because he desires to adopt you as his sons and his daughters. It is to build his church. Don't get me wrong. Your salvation is for your good. And your salvation is because God chose to love you. But God's primary motivation in your salvation is this, to magnify his glory and to show his righteousness. And Paul asked the right question. Well, then what becomes of our boasting? Quick answer. It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. Do you see the problem, church, we have when we make the basis of our righteousness our own deeds? First, we have no good deeds apart from Christ to boast in. None. We're hopeless and will never be made right with God based on our own works. More importantly, when we are seeking to highlight our own righteousness, we are not concerned with highlighting the righteousness of God. We have minimized God's work and tried to somehow eclipse it with our own. We are seeking the glory that God is due, and there is nothing that angers God more than that. Through the prophet Isaiah in chapter 42, the Lord God says this, I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. God being concerned about his glory is right and good, for there is no one else and nothing else that deserves glory but God alone. As we make our way back to Luke 18.9, we see the other problem that Jesus addresses. Not only do people trust in themselves that they are righteous, As a result, they treat others with contempt. They falsely glory in their lofty position with God. That is a result of their work, decisions, and lifestyle. And treat others as though they are worthless. Of course, this is false. They they tend to think much of themselves and basically despise those that aren't as outwardly clean as they are. As I've said before, church, your theology has consequences. Your orthodoxy leads to orthopraxy always. You cannot divorce the two. For example, we know that Jesus sums up the law by saying the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second greatest commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. There's a connection here. If you love God, and I mean truly love God, there's, a, there's affection, there's, there's joy in him. You love him the way Christ calls us to love him. When, if you love God, you will most certainly love what he loves. Who does Christ love? Christ loves people, even the most wretched of them. There is a connection to our love of God and a love of people. The correlation also has an opposite effect for those that truly don't love God who truly don't treasure God. It is most natural for those people who think that they earned their way to God by their good behavior to treat others as worthless human beings that will never measure up to them. They don't actually love God, so they do not love their neighbor. And as Jesus continues with this parable, we see that two men go to the temple to pray. One man is a Pharisee. One man is a Pharisee. We've already been exposed to the Pharisees, but we know that the Pharisees were the clean-cut, conservative, wealthy, admired, law-abiding, moral examples in Israel at the time of Christ. These are exactly the types of people that you would expect to see at the temple praying. They desired to be seen by man. They desired for their prayers to be heard. 
If there was anything that the Pharisees loved more than money, it was the praise of man. It was indeed the Pharisees who have continued to bump heads with Jesus because of their own self-righteous attitudes. They thought much of their own outward obedience. They prided themselves in obeying the law. And as we will see, they clearly represent the individuals who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. The other man was a tax collector. We know that, that all of the Jews hated tax collectors because tax collectors were scum. They were dishonest and greedy. The Jews had a disdain for Rome because Israel and the Jewish people were under Roman occupation. If there was anything that the Jews hated more than Rome, it was tax collectors. This was because tax collectors were most often Jews who chose to work for Rome and collect taxes for Rome. However, they didn't just collect taxes. They overcharged their own people in order to make exorbitant profits. Tax collectors were dirty sinners and they knew it. In fact, showing up to the temple to pray was the last place you would typically find a tax collector. First, they didn't want anything to do with God. Second, the people at the temple wanted no part of worshiping alongside such crooked people. Suffice it to say, Jesus starts this parable with two polar opposite types of people. Yet, it is the descriptions of these people that is so profound and convicting. Ultimately, one will be described by Jesus as righteous, while the other is explicitly identified as not righteous by our Lord. Point three, our lives boldly declare where we put our hope. Our lives boldly declare where we put our hope. The reality is this, church, that the fruit of our lives, the fruit displayed in our lives, screams out whether we're justified or not. The fruit of our lives screams out whether we're justified or not. Here, Jesus describes the fruit of both a justified and an unjustified man. Let's quickly, briefly, take a look at the description and characteristics of the self-righteous Pharisee. We see in verse 11, the Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus. He said, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I get tithes of, of, of all that I get. So get. Jesus gives sort of a, a, a picture here, a story here of, of what self-righteous people look like, of, of what people look like who trust in themselves that they are righteous and treat others with contempt. First, in their hearts. They, generally, they, they, they genuinely think they are better than other people. They genuinely actually look, and they think they're better than other people. They look around the church, and they say, I'm, yeah, I'm better than him, I'm better than him. I'm the gold standard here of righteousness. I mean, I mean look at this Pharisee. He, it says he's standing by himself. He's, he, he, he will not be associated with this tax collector. He will not be associated with anyone else. We know that the Pharisees love to pray loud, so he's standing in himself in his little spotlight in the corner, praying loud for people to hear and people to see him. And in his prayer to God, he prays a prayer promoting himself. He prays a prayer promoting himself. He actually, in his prayer, deliberately says, God, I thank you that I am not like him. You're like, well, I wouldn't do that. Or maybe you wouldn't be that bold. But we're bold enough to talk to our wives about who we're better than. We're bold enough to talk to each other who we're better than. I mean, we're, we're, we're really bold. We're really bold with the things we say. Watch yourself this next week. Have your spouse kind of nudge you when you're speaking this way. I thank God like I'm not like other people in our hearts, we actually really do struggle with this at times. We really do. We're narcissistic, self-righteous. In our hearts, we actually think we're better. Next characteristic of the self-righteous Pharisee is that all of their good decisions are a result of their own inward righteousness. Oh, my life turned out so great because I'm not like this person. 
I'm not an extortioner. I'm not unjust. I'm not an adulterer. I don't struggle with this sin. I didn't do that. I'm wealthy because I'm good. I'm happy because I'm good. My marriage is because I'm good. Our church is good because we're good, etc., etc., etc. It goes on and on and on and on. All good things in my life are a result of me because I am good. I earned it. American dream, praise God. That's how we are in our country. We're bootstrap people. Pick us up. I'm good enough to do that. Friend, there's a giant difference. There's a giant canyon difference between thanking God for sparing you of certain things. God, thank you for your grace in my life and sparing me of such a situation, sparing me of such sin. Thank, thank you for, for, your, for your protection in my life rather than this Pharisee's prayer of thanking God that you're so great. But we have a tendency to think that way. And next, these self-righteous Pharisees, they're well-versed in the sins of others. Oh, they know the sin that's happening to everybody around them. Oh, they got a PhD on the sins of culture. They got a PhD on the sins of others in the church. They got a PhD in the sins in their neighborhood. Oh, they know it all. PhD. They love it. They got a whole long list of books. Just like this tax, this, this Pharisee here. I'm not like this guy. This is all the stuff he does, God. Not only are they well-versed in the sins of others, but they are well-versed in their good deeds, and they're, they're, very, they're very quick to spout them out. Oh, yeah, these guys, but here's what I do. I do this. I do that. I'm righteous. I'm good. Look at what I do. Look at me. Look at me. And finally, they tend to lack a heart. That is convicted of sin. And as a result, don't confess their sin. You see that? No confession of sin. He's, he's talking to God and praising himself. This is not the characteristic of a man who was indeed justified before God. But then there's another man, the tax collector, standing far off who would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. We see characteristics of, of the humble who Christ says ultimately will be exalted. First, they, they do not think much of themselves. They don't. Uh, notice that the tax collector is standing far off. He, and he's not standing far off in the same way that the, that the Pharisee was standing by himself. He was standing far off because he didn't feel worthy to be around others. This was a position of humility. He looks around, he looks around at the people praying in the temple and he, he realizes, I, I am just painfully aware of my sin. I'm, a pain, I'm painfully aware of my guilt before God. And he knows that everyone in that room knows how guilty he is. It's very obvious. But Psalm 51.17 says this, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. Second characteristic of, of the humble who will be exalted is this. That their hearts are fearful before a holy God. Notice, notice here that this tax collector would not even lift his eyes to heaven. All, all he could do was beat his breast. And characteristic number three, and know that his only hope is in God's grace alone. He beat his breast. He pleaded with God. Just God, I need your mercy. I have nothing to say. I have nothing to offer. I have nothing to do. I know I'm guilty. The, you know, we, we think God's going to stand and ask us, you know, Brian, why should I let you into heaven? And the only answer I have is, God, you shouldn't. You shouldn't let me into heaven. I don't deserve it. The only thing I can appeal to is your mercy. Plain as day. And the only thing I can appeal to is the fact that you offered your mercy in Christ Jesus. Who fulfilled the righteousness that I couldn't fulfill. I can only appeal to your mercy. Period. And the, and the final characteristic of, of this humble, justified man who will be exalted is this, that they are quick to confess their sin to God. 
They're quick. They don't just ignore it. They don't sweep it under the rug. They don't minimize it. They confess it. Ultimately, this brings us back to the issue of justification and point four. Point four, lastly, only those whose hope is fully and actually, not simply theoretically, in Jesus will be exalted. Only those whose hope is fully and actually, not simply theoretically, in Jesus will be exalted. We see this, that the sin-filled, hated, and morally bankrupt tax collector ultimately sought God's grace. And you know what? He found it. He found it. This is a result of him encountering the one true holy God and humbling himself before him not justifying himself, not making excuses, not minimizing his sin, but simply bowing before God and pleading for mercy. All who come to God for mercy, he gives mercy. Every last person, every sinner, every vile sinner, no matter what you've done, no matter your past, everyone who comes to Christ for mercy receives it without fail. And the outwardly moral, the outwardly obedient, the respected, the wealthy, self-righteous Pharisee will ultimately be humbled before the one true holy God because he doesn't actually think that he needs the righteousness of God. He's good on his own. Well, Jesus tells us that everyone who exalts himself in this life will indeed be humbled. If your life, feel the weight of that, church. Everyone who exalts himself, everyone, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. If your life is marked by self-promotion, self-righteousness, hypocrisy, and treating others with contempt because they don't measure up to your levels of supposed righteousness, there is at least the chance that you don't know Christ at all. There is a chance you haven't tasted his grace and forgiveness. And as a result, you stand to face God's wrath forever. There's a chance. Jesus also tells us that everyone in this life who humbles himself will be exalted. Everyone who feels the full weight of their sin and doesn't downplay their sin and turns to Christ for mercy will indeed receive salvation for all of eternity. Martin Luther once wrote this. He said, God does not save those who are only imaginary sinners. Be a sinner. And let your sins be strong. Oh, but let your trust in Christ be stronger. And rejoice in Christ, who is the victor over sin, death, and the world. For some in this room, perhaps you need to humble yourself before the Lord today and receive Christ as Savior for the very first time. However, I'm well aware that most of the people in this room are indeed justified and praise God for that. They are safe in Christ's hands where no one can snatch them away. Yet, yet, we who are in Christ constantly still battle the flesh, don't we? We still battle the flesh. We struggle with a whole host of sins, especially the sins of self-righteousness. Church, we must fight self-righteousness by the power of the Holy Spirit. We must fight unloving hearts towards others by the power of the Holy Spirit. Christ has indeed given us all that we need to kill this sin. A few implications and then I'm done. A few implications. I have three types of implications. One for our church collectively. One for us as individuals. And because it's Father's Day, one for fathers. I didn't forget us today, men. Church, it 
it can be very easy for us to have a culture in our church that is like that of the Pharisees. Hear me here. You really can. We, we, can, we can pray things such as, say things such as, believe things such as, thank God we're not like other churches. Those churches that have people walk the aisle. Those churches that have a single preaching pastor. Those churches that sing music by Hillsong. Those churches that only preach 25-minute sermons. Those churches that have a youth group. Those churches that focus too much on politics. Those churches that are entirely too charismatic. Those churches that, that don't emphasize our biggest soapbox issue, whatever that is. It can also be easy to say, God, look at what we do. Look at how much we give to missions. Look at how long our sermons are. Look how rich our music is. Look how profound our small groups are. Look how intentional our prayer nights are. Look how many of our families homeschool. These are all things that if we're not careful, we can be like the Pharisees. We can look at many denominations and find that its churches can be prone to be more passionate about the denomination and or tradition than they are the word of God. We can look at churches that are more confessional and find that they are prone to be more committed to a confession than the word of God. Friends, there are temptations that independent Bible churches like ours have as well. And it is often the that independent Bible churches have a tendency to live on an island as a self-identified city on a hill because they have it all figured out while none of those other churches do. May the Lord keep us from Christ's dishonoring pride, self-exaltation, and arrogance at CBC. Where it exists, may we corporately repent of it. That is a church implication. For, for us as individuals, we must pray that God would keep us from pride and self-reliance. We must pray. We must start out each day and ask God to do this in our hearts. We can't do it on our own. It'd just be another work. We need the Holy Spirit to do this. We must fight the temptation to compare ourselves to others as we forget that anything good in us is a result of Christ. We also must not think that the tax collector's biggest success we must not think that the tax collector's biggest problem was his personality. It was his heart. Some of the least outwardly boastful people can possess some of the most prideful hearts. Tax collector's problem wasn't his personality. Tax collector's problem was his heart. We must ask the Holy Spirit would reveal the sin within us, give us the power to kill that sin. And then for us as fathers, on Father's Day, it can be easy for us as fathers to be extremely self-righteous. We can look at the way that we lead our families or our lives and think, thank God I'm not like those other fathers. Thank God I'm not like those other husbands. Fathers, that attitude is not only dangerous for you, it is dangerous for the family that you lead. We must fight the temptation to lead our families in a way where we must always be the hero. Fathers, we are not the hero. Our kids don't need more of us. Our kids need more of Jesus. They only need, they only need more of us in as much as we're pointing them to Christ. In closing, church, Christ is not pleased with self-righteousness. It is not a tolerable sin. It is not an okay sin. 
that is not a sin that we can sweep under the rug. Yet Christ died for self-righteous sinners like us. He saved us and made us new in order to walk in righteousness. He saved us for good works, such as putting self-righteousness to death. Not only that, but Christ has given us the Spirit, which is the only way that we can actually put sin to death. Church, may we honor Christ as we repent of self-righteousness and daily acknowledge our dependence on him for all things. Amen.